Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 44, The Great Dying. Hello everyone and welcome once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. I mentioned previously that you would be hearing about Central Cultural Akamama in the future, and I do have an announcement. Akamama is booking spots to participate in an excavation in the Cusco area, which will take place between June and August of this year, 2022. For two weeks, participants will excavate as well as register artifacts and visit other archaeological sites that are a bit off the beaten path. Accommodations are provided as well as transport to and from the sites, breakfast, lunch, and other items. This is open to just about anyone. No experience is necessary, but each two-week period is limited to 10 participants. So if you are someone who is interested in pursuing archaeology, is a bit curious about what fieldwork is like as an archaeologist, or is someone who has always wanted to visit Peru and is someone that is looking for a unique experience, then contact Central Cultural Akamama at info at akamama.com. That again is info at A-Q-A-M-A-M-A. As a former archaeologist, I highly recommend checking out this dig. It is a fun experience. You'll get dirty, you will learn what fieldwork is like, and you may find a cool artifact. There is something very awesome about picking up an object that nobody else has seen or touched in hundreds of years. You're directly connected to the past through such an experience. So I highly recommend investigating the opportunity Akamama is offering if you are even slightly interested. And then let them know that A History of the Inca sent you. Now then, today we are going to change pace a little bit. We'll actually be zooming out of our focus area that has been the Andes and the Inca Empire. Yes, one could say that we've done that a bit by looking at Maze or covering El Condor Pasa, but those were all one-off episodes. We've never done this in the narrative. No, today we are going to look at something that greatly impacted the Americas and will have a direct impact on our narrative, an event that has been dubbed the Great Dying. The Great Dying is a time in the Americas where the indigenous population was decimated for various factors stemming from colonization. We'll be focusing on one and mentioning several others briefly. This isn't because the subject isn't important, far from it. This subject could easily be a dissertation or even its own podcast. But that would be a very depressing podcast to say the least. This was a difficult subject to research and will be difficult to discuss. Sadly, some of what will be covered is quite applicable even today. It is difficult to imagine discussing the Great Dying without first mentioning the Spanish. 
Not that the Spanish haven't been mentioned before in the show. I've mentioned several chroniclers and have alluded to their whereabouts throughout our podcast. But I have not given you a lot of detail of what this unknown kingdom, at least unknown to the Inca at our point in the narrative, has been up to. They will be covered in much more detail in the very near future, I promise you. So here is a quick and dirty recap of where they are at. At this point of the narrative, the Spanish have been in the Caribbean for decades now. The Aztec Empire has fallen, and the Pacific Ocean has been reached. However, ever since Christopher Columbus set foot on Hispaniola, disease was always seemingly several steps ahead of any explorer. And Europe was ripe with diseases. Measles, smallpox, influenza, bubonic plague were all diseases that were initially brought over from Europe to the Americas. Malaria and typhus appeared only a little later. I want to talk about two of those diseases, though, specifically measles and smallpox. Smallpox was eradicated around 1980, and hopefully you've never had measles, so this should be new to many of you. With measles, you would get symptoms 7 to 14 days after exposure. A cough, runny nose, red and watery eyes would start. You'd develop a high fever, reaching upwards of 104 degrees Fahrenheit. White spots would begin to form in your mouth, and a rash starting at the hairline. They would spread, and eventually tiny raised bumps would form. Ear infections, diarrhea, pneumonia, and the swelling of the brain could all be consequences of measles. People can die to respiratory, neurological issues, or even from severe dehydration. Smallpox, or the variola virus, has been around for thousands of years. Evidence of it can be found on Egyptian mummies from 3,000 years ago. Written evidence dates back to the 4th century China. Smallpox is spread through the air if an infected person is close enough or fluid from the pestules which can break and seep into clothing. It can be 7 to 19 days before a person shows the initial symptoms of smallpox after contact. The initial symptoms of high fever, body aches, and vomiting last anywhere from 2 to 4 days and typically prevent any person from carrying on with normal activities. A rash starts on the tongue and mouth, and the rash is a bunch of small bumps and eventually grow and break open, spreading the rash to other areas of the body. With the rash appearing, the fever typically stops, but the rash continues and covers the entire body. The bumps will begin to fill with fluid once more, and the fever will reappear. The bumps will harden into pustules and scab over. Once all the scabs have fallen off, the person is no longer contagious. That is about four weeks after the rash first appears. Systematic shock and toxins in the blood was what historically killed 30% of the people who were infected with smallpox. Now, there is a common misconception that Native Americans, and I'm talking about all of the Americas when I say Native Americans, 
that they didn't have any immunity to these diseases. And that is somewhat misleading and has been used as a way to argue that Native Americans were somehow inferior to Europeans. And that's simply not the case. Of course, Native Americans had immune systems and have immune systems. It wasn't as if there weren't diseases already present in the Americas. There were, such as tuberculosis. But they did not coexist with these new diseases for thousands of years like Europeans had. They didn't have acquired immunity. Also, you must bear in mind that many people would survive a single disease. 70% of the people who got smallpox survived. Yes, a 30% mortality rate is very high, but there were many survivors. However, one disease was not the sole arbiter of death. Native Americans would contract multiple diseases at once or in succession. You might survive influenza and then maybe even smallpox, but what are those little white bumps inside of your mouth? Our household got a taste of this, thankfully to a lesser extent, over the past several months. Hand, foot, and mouth disease hit half our household, only to be followed up by the flu a few weeks later. And finally, COVID, a couple months afterwards. Thanks to modern medicine, we can tackle a lot of these diseases more easily, but it takes a lot of energy out of one to fight them. So we have these diseases coming from Europe to the Americas. What was the population like before Europeans arrived in the Caribbean versus after? Let me start by saying it is not easy estimating the pre-Columbian population of the Americas. However, the general consensus is that there were about 60 million people. This was less than Europe, which was somewhere between 70 million and 75 million, and the area of lower China was about 100 million at this time. This all meant that the Americas were less densely populated, which is a benefit when discussing the spreading of diseases. However, it turns out it made little difference. In the Caribbean, it is estimated that the population dropped to as low as 22,000, a 99% drop from the 4 million people that were estimated to have lived there prior to Columbus's arrival. Mexico saw an 87% reduction of population within the first 50 years of European arrival. Given more time, the original population of 20 million people fell to only 1.5 million, a 93% decline. Central America? It had about 6 million people pre-contact with Europeans. Post-contact? Well, the Mayans saw a population loss of between 62 and 79 percent. By 1650, the population of the area was just over half a million, a 90 percent drop. Well, let's talk about the area that we are concerned about as a podcast, the Inca Empire. By the late 1520s, smallpox had taken hold and 30 to 50 percent of the population had died. On the coast, the population decline was a little bit less severe, 10% initially. However, by 1620, 
the Inca heartland, which, which had an estimated population of 9 million before the Spanish came to the Americas, was about 670,000, a 93% decline. Of course, I could go on to other parts of the Americas, but I think you get the picture. So, was this decline in population all because of disease? No, of course not. Was it a significant contributor? Certainly. But nothing is that simple. There were other forces at play. So let's take a look at those. We'll start with warfare. Conflicts between groups persisted during the arrival of the Spanish. Old enemies didn't just become friends. Disputes continued. Think of all the rebellions that we have covered only in the last episode. Not to mention the war we will cover in two episodes' time. The loss of life continued in part thanks to warfare. Later on, we'll have the exploitation of human labor by the Spanish and other colonizers of the Americas. This took place almost immediately after the first Europeans arrived and spread throughout. People being forced to work in miserable and unsafe conditions still factors into the numbers I stated previously. We can also look at the decline in the birth rate during this time period. As the situation unfolded, people looked around and probably asked themselves, do we really want to bring a child into this world? A world where there's seemingly constant conflict, people being forced into hard labor, and disease spreading all around? Not exactly the best for a baby. Take the pandemic that we are currently still in as an example. I personally know of some folks who have delayed having kids. We actually delayed for a short while just to give some more thought into the whole situation. If you have a lower birth rate of only a couple percentage points, that greatly impacts the overall population over time. Let's discuss what this all means for agricultural production. There were around 62 million hectares of land in agricultural production in the Americas at the time Columbus arrived. That is roughly 10% of the landmass of the area. Much smaller than that of Europe, which was at 23%. However, if you have a significant part of your population out sick for weeks or worse, dead, your agricultural production is going to decline dramatically. We can again put this into context of the modern day. I'm sure you've all been impacted by labor issues stemming from this pandemic. Some people claim that it is people who just don't want to work, and that may explain a few cases. However, if you have food workers who have to take time off due to illness or who have to watch their child because schools are closed or they are sick, well, it only takes a handful of cases, such as those, to force a business to cut hours or close completely. Much like our subject today, widespread illness can bring society down to its knees. It is a system, and there are consequences. And what are the consequences of lower agricultural production? Well, famines, for one. Less people to work the fields means fewer crops produced, and less to go around and eat. 
but it also means that over time, a good portion of the land that was cultivated previously was taken over by nature, and carbon was sequestered. This led to a drop in the global CO2 levels of the atmosphere. CO2, of course, is a greenhouse gas. It traps in warm air and makes our planet hotter. A reduction of CO2 makes the planet cooler. A reduction of this greenhouse gas, thanks to the unworked fields caused by the depopulation of the Americas, drove the world into what has been called the Little Ice Age, which in turn played a part in rebellions and revolutions across the globe. I'm looking at you, France. But we must circle back to Columbus. Was it his fault that diseases sailed with him and killed millions of people in the Americas? No, it wasn't. The knowledge of germs and viruses wouldn't be discovered for centuries after Columbus. He had no idea that those diseases were stowaways. Don't get me wrong, Columbus was a terrible human being. He enslaved, mutilated, and killed people. Some of his men raped native women. He stole and plundered from the local groups that he encountered. Columbus was an awful human being. Again, though, it wouldn't have mattered. Anyone coming from Europe, Africa, or Asia would have brought diseases over to the Americas, and nothing could have been done to prevent that part of the great dying from occurring. All the exploitation and murder associated with colonization? That's a different story. So let's bring this back to the narrative and to Wanakapak. As you recall from our last episode, Wanakapak had developed a fever by the time he returned to Quito. He had heard about people dying in Cusco and was apparently planning to march back to the capital to get a hold of the situation but he would never make it there. He died not long after making it to Quito. The cause of death? We aren't exactly sure. But based on the description of witnesses, many believe it was smallpox. Wanakapak had an interesting start to his rule. Now it is likely that many Sapa Inca began their rule with rebellions and rumors of possible coups occurring. However, we have never had specifics about such events. His young age put him in a regency under his uncle, and even when he was old enough to shrug that off, his mother insisted that he stay close to the capital. That changed after Mama Oklo's death, and eventually the 11th Sapa Inca would spend much of his time north, in the Quito and Tomebamba area, making it the unofficial seat of power. Wanakapak is viewed as a competent military ruler, dealing with his fair share of rebellions such as the Cachapoyas and the numerous groups around Quito. However, he had his fair share of setbacks as well. All of those rebels put up excellent resistance to Inca rule, and we must not forget him getting tossed off his litter and nearly captured, an embarrassing incident that could have been catastrophic. So despite him not being 
as great of a leader as his father or grandfather, Wanakapak was still able to consolidate the empire a bit and even expand it, giving his panaka some gains. Perhaps, most importantly, was that he was the undisputed Sapa Inca at the time of his death. Sure, there were rebels, there were always rebels, but that is different than what I am getting at. Everyone in the Inca heartland knew who the Sapa Inca was. There were no challengers to the fringe who sought to unseat Huanacapac from power at the time of his death. And so, if he had survived whatever disease or diseases killed him, perhaps what happens next may not have happened at all. <laughs>